Over the last few weeks, we have listened to Jesus' messages to his churches. Seven messages to seven churches. And as we've heard Jesus speaking to those churches, we have learned what those churches are like. Because Jesus' commendations show us the positives, and his rebukes to the churches highlight the negatives. Taken together, those seven messages give us a picture of the church on earth. And we have to say that overall, it is not great. There are some positives. It's not all bad, but it's not great. The church faces attacks. Often obvious attacks from direct persecution. But maybe more often, the church faces much more subtle attacks. Temptations to compromise or to become complacent or self-satisfied. Or finally, just to give up. And we've seen as we've looked at chapters 2 and 3 that the church often succumbs to those temptations. The church can be plagued with compromise and with failure. And I would guess that all of us knew that even before we read these seven messages. I would guess that many of us have personally experienced the weakness of the church in one form or another. We know it's not always what it's called to be. And if we're honest, each of us has made our own contribution to the compromises and failures of the church. The church on earth is imperfect. And at the same time, the church is called to be victorious. That call came in each one of those seven messages. So then, where do we find our hope in the midst of all these failures? Where can we find the encouragement we need to persevere? We find it by looking from the scene on earth to the scene in heaven. If we're going to persevere right through to victory, we need a vision of God on his throne. And that's what the book of Revelation gives us next. So turn with me, if you haven't already opened your Bible, to Revelation chapter 4. In the church Bible, that's page 1236. In the large print, 1917. And as we read this, we'll see it's no accident this comes right after the seven messages. Chapter 4, verse 1. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door, standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, 
A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is God's word. And verse 1 gives us the context of what we've just read. John says, after this. In other words, after what I heard in chapters 2 and 3. John is giving us things in this book in the order he saw and heard them. And what he sees next is a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice that introduced the first vision back in chapter 1 again introduces this vision. The voice says, I will show you what must take place after this. Meaning, again, after what you've just heard from me. Here's the next thing you're to write down and send to the churches. And in verse 2, John says, At once I was in the Spirit. So just like in chapter 1, John is given another visionary experience. This is a glimpse of transcendent realities. Realities you and I cannot normally see. But that doesn't make them any less real. In fact, what John sees here has more solidity and weightiness to it than the things we see every day. Every day we are surrounded with momentary, insubstantial things. But what we see here is eternal. And it's only by focusing on eternal things that we get the proper perspective on all the other stuff. The eternal reality that John sees is the God who is glorious 
central and sovereign. Those are the things that come across as John describes this scene for us. And we need to keep in mind here that John is trying to describe the indescribable. On top of that, this is a reality John's readers have never seen or experienced. We actually barely have the language that's needed to describe this. You get that sense as we read through. John is straining to describe this for us. As best he can, he's giving us a sense of what he saw. Again and again, he does that by making comparisons with things you and I do know. So he says, something had the appearance of, or it was like, or it looked like. And it's helpful to know John is not the only writer in Scripture to have seen these transcendent realities. We saw earlier that Isaiah was given a glimpse of this throne. So were Moses and Ezekiel. If you want to compare their descriptions, have a look later at Exodus chapter 24 and Ezekiel chapter 1, as well as Isaiah 6. It seems the Apostle Paul saw this too, although he never attempted to describe it. But in the descriptions we do have, there's always this sense of describing the indescribable. So, for example, in Ezekiel's account, he ends up saying, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel says, here's the best I can do to describe this. But after all my efforts, it's still only the appearance of the likeness of the glory. Ezekiel saying the reality is so much greater than my description of it. And we get that same sense from what John says in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. The impression we get here is one of radiant light and vibrant color. That's how one writer sums up verse 3. You may have a translation that mentions carnelian instead of ruby. That's because at the time John was writing, some of the gemstones were known by different names than we know them by today. And what the translators are doing is try to match the descriptions with the stones that we know today. In any case, it doesn't really matter whether John means a ruby or a carnelian because they're both red. And what John wants us to understand is that the one on the throne is glorious. If you've ever seen the crown jewels... Think for a moment of the way light reflects off those jewels. It's spectacular. It gives a sense of majesty. And the throne John sees here is radiating majesty. 
brightness and glory. And John sees what looks like a shining rainbow encircling this throne. That adds to the sense of light and color and majesty. But the rainbow isn't just about God's appearance. It tells us something about what makes God glorious. Remember where the rainbow was first mentioned in Scripture? Way back, almost at the beginning, in the book of Genesis. God was confronted with a world of evil. And out of that world, he saved Noah and his family. Then he wiped the earth clean and he started again, new. And God chose the rainbow as a reminder of his everlasting covenant with his creation. One aspect of God's glory is his ability to make all things new. The rainbow we see on earth corresponds to a reality in heaven. The God of all creation will not leave his creation groaning in its bondage to decay. One day, Revelation will go on to tell us, the glory of heaven will come down to earth. And the earth itself will be made new. And even today, that new creation is underway. As men and women see God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ and become new creations themselves through faith in Christ. The one on the throne is glorious and his glory is seen in his new creation power. And verse 4 shows us the supreme achievement of that new creation power. Verse 4 describes 24 elders dressed in white with crowns of gold on their heads. In chapters 2 and 3, those were the rewards promised to God's victorious people. So these elders represent God's victorious people in God's presence. Why are there 24 of them? Well, God's Old Testament people were made up of 12 tribes. And Jesus chose 12 apostles to be the foundation of the New Testament people of God. Revelation uses the number 12 in various different ways to refer to the complete number of God's people. Here, that completeness is shown by 24 elders representing the Old and the New Testament people of God together. Their presence round the throne of God is a display of God's glory. They are the result of God's new creating power. They wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him. They wouldn't have white robes and crowns if it wasn't for his work through his Son. We'll see that next week in chapter 5. So these 24 elders show God's glory in what he has done, and they also show God's centrality. We're told the 24 elders are also on thrones, 
But their thrones are surrounding the throne. In fact, that's true of everything in this throne room. It's all arranged around God's throne. What does that tell us? It tells us that when God, when John looks at God on his throne, he is looking at the center of the universe. That's the symbolism of this furniture arrangement in heaven. It tells us the universe doesn't revolve around Moscow or Beijing or Washington or London or any other seat of human government. And this vision also shows I'm not the center of the universe. And neither are you. Very often we live as if we are. One way we might do that is by trying to dominate other people. Or we might just as easily do it by living our lives sulking and offended most of the time. Because things aren't going our way. And people aren't treating us right. It's not just over-pampered celebrities who think they're the center of the universe. Haven't we all thrown our share of tantrums? Haven't we all done our share of crying in the corner because people didn't notice us or praise us or promote us? We've all done it. And in those moments, when we're acting like the world revolves around us, we need this vision. We need to be reminded that God is the one on the throne. The universe revolves around him. We really don't need to take ourselves that seriously. The world wouldn't fall apart if it was deprived of my genius. But it would fall apart without God. The centrality of God's throne shows us something else. It shows us that chance is not at the center of the universe. History is not unfolding at the mercy of random chemical reactions or chaotic collisions of atoms. There are no accidents. There is no such thing as luck. There are no fortunate or unfortunate coincidences. History is ruled by this eternal king on his throne. Every other throne has a lesser place around this central throne. The one on the throne is glorious. He is central. And he is sovereign. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like 
a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. Everything in these verses displays God's sovereign power. Verse 5 mentions lightning and thunder. And throughout Revelation, whenever God's judgment is mentioned, it is accompanied each time with references to thunder and lightning. And here, before any of that judgment is described, we are told where it comes from. From God on his throne. Also in verse 5, John sees seven lamps in front of the throne. And these are different from the lamp stands in chapter 1. Those represented the churches, we were told. These lamps represent the seven spirits of God. Or the sevenfold spirit of God. We've seen in previous weeks, seven is the number of completeness. And the sevenfold spirit seems to be a reference to the Holy Spirit. Chapter 5 will explain the sevenfold spirit is sent out into all the earth. And the message is, this sovereign God on the throne exercises his rule on earth through his Holy Spirit. The influence and the power of the Holy Spirit reaches completely through the earth. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts men and women of their sin and brings them to faith in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells God's people. God's people in the New Testament are called God's temple because God the Holy Spirit lives in us and guides us and enables us to persevere. And here we're being shown the Holy Spirit is not operating on his own initiative. He is sent from the sovereign throne of God. Also in front of the throne, verse 6, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The sea is going to come up a few times in Revelation. And it's useful to know that in the ancient world, the sea was a symbol of chaos. That was especially true in Israel's own experience. The western border of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. The sea was where invaders came from. Enemies came from the sea. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, he sees a vision of beasts coming out of the sea. That's in Daniel 7. And we'll find that picture later in Revelation as well. The sea is used to represent threats, to represent the chaos and the hostile powers that rise up on this earth. It's churned up and it's stormy. Frightening things come out of it. But look at the sea here. 
from the viewpoint of God's throne. It's like glass, clear as crystal. What's the message? Surely the message is that however things look here on earth, God is completely in control. So often you and I see chaos and uncertainty all around us. The world seems to be churning up like a hostile sea. Our lives feel like we're bobbing up and down on that sea. About to get swallowed up by the next wave. And so we might expect the throne room of God to be like the trading floor of the stock exchange. God and his courtiers rushing around in a panic, trying to sort everything before God's plans go into meltdown. That's what we might expect. But John sees a very different situation. There's no panic at all. From heaven's perspective, the sea is tranquil. Now that is not because God is oblivious. It's not because God doesn't care. It's because he's in control. This is not the peacefulness of a sleeping God. We've just seen the lightning and thunder in verse 5. It is clear God is very much awake. And he's a God of action. We'll see that in the chapters to come. But God's actions are not knee-jerk reactions, the way ours often are. God is in full control at all times. His actions don't come from panic. They are the steady working out of his eternal plans. What looks like a sea of unpredictable chaos to you and me is fully under control from God's perspective. And that control is also shown by these four living creatures round the throne. I said a moment ago, Daniel saw a vision of terrible beasts coming out of the churning sea. But just as the sea that's stormy from the perspective of earth is still from heaven's perspective, So the living creatures are seen to be under God's control. We'll see in a moment. These living creatures serve God day and night. They're showing us that creation is under God's authority. And they also show that creation displays the attributes of the Creator. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes that God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, those things have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. That's what these living creatures are doing. They are reflecting God's invisible qualities. So one of them is like a lion, the king of the beasts reflecting God's own majesty. One is like an ox. Oxen represent strength, reliability, 
reflecting God's strength and reliability. One of them has a face like a man. Out of all God's creation, human beings have a unique level of intelligence. And in that, they are reflecting the intelligence of their creator. The fourth living creature is like a flying eagle, reflecting God's protecting care. A good number of the Psalms speak about God's people taking shelter in the shadow of his wings. Whenever we see how an eagle protects its young, we are seeing a reflection of how God cares for his people. All of those invisible qualities are made visible in these living creatures from God's creation. And John says, all the living creatures are covered with eyes in front and behind. That's a way of saying God sees and knows all. He is omniscient. Nothing in creation escapes his notice. So if we put all the parts of verses 5 to 7 together, the thunder and lightning, the sevenfold spirit, the sea, the living creatures, we are seeing God's active sovereignty over all his creation. None of it is out of his control. He is at work in the midst of all of it. All of it is in his service. It's under the authority of his throne. We've looked at the significance of those four living creatures. But they're not just here for show. They are, in fact, occupied day and night, we're told. They're doing what all creation was designed to do. Look at the middle of verse 8. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. The God who sits on the throne is the God who is worthy of worship. There are many people and many things that receive worship. But there's only one who is worthy of worship. The God John sees is holy. That's a word that really only fits God himself. It includes all of his perfections. Not just his purity, but everything that he is. 
And these verses go on to mention three of those perfections specifically. God is almighty, and he has infinite existence. He was and is and is to come. And he created all things. And so as they're confronted with this holy God on the throne, the 24 elders lay their crowns before the throne. They're acknowledging that all human authority is only loaned from the one on the throne. It's only borrowed. All authority belongs to him. And he alone is worthy of worship. In fact, all creation owes him worship. When other things receive worship, they are stealing it or trying to steal it from the one who sits on the throne. That's the reality. And John sees it clearly in this vision. But that reality is constantly being denied here on earth. Other powers are always contesting God's authority and worthiness. At the time John is writing, the Roman emperor was contesting it. We saw in earlier weeks that the emperor demanded worship. And historians tell us whenever a new emperor was crowned, the people were required to cry out to the emperor, you are worthy. But Rome could only deny reality for so long. The Roman Empire is gone. And God is still on his throne. Today, God's authority and worthiness are still being denied all around us. But the rest of this book is going to show us trying to deny reality is not very clever. You can only do it for so long. I can step off the edge of a cliff and depending on how high the cliff is, I might have a few seconds to shout my defiance to the law of gravity. But the law of gravity is still in operation. And when my few seconds are up, that reality will become unavoidably clear. And in a similar way, men and women can shout their defiance of God's glory and centrality and sovereignty. They can deny they owe him worship. But that does not change reality. He still is glorious and central and sovereign. All creation truly does owe him worship. And sooner or later that will become unavoidably clear to everyone. You and I belong to the church on earth. And because we belong to the church on earth, we experience the 
pressures and challenges the church has always experienced as we seek to be faithful witnesses here on earth. And so what we need over and over again is to be reminded of the scene in heaven. We need to refocus on the reality of God's glory, centrality, and sovereignty. We need to be reminded that he alone is worthy of worship. We need to be reminded that our true fulfillment comes from worshiping him. Those are not realities you and I can see every day. One day they will be seen on earth. There will be no more denials of reality. God's majesty and power will no longer be contested here on earth. But in the meantime, God pulled back the curtain for John. And he did it for John so that you and I could catch a glimpse of those realities. And then renew our courage. And renew our worship. We're going to do that together as we bring our worship to him. As we sing, King of the universe, Lord of the ages.